Good morning, I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor uh, here of the church and I want to invite you to open up your bulletins. Uh, we're going to be looking into the scriptures. There's a place to take notes with the, uh, this, the message today. Homosexuality, Jesus and the LGBT community this is one of the toughest topics to talk about today. Um, what does God really think about homosexuality? We're going to talk about that. We're in a series called Questions Answered, Shining Light on the Bible's Toughest Problems. And, and here's what we want to know on this subject. Here's what you want to know. Um, you've told me this. Um, you want to know, what does God really think? What does the Bible say? And for some people, those two aren't the same questions. Um, what do I say to my LGBT friends and coworkers? What do I do with my feelings when they don't line up with the Bible? Um, we sent out two articles this week, articles that I wrote um, to our church's email list on this subject. They discuss in much more depth um, the issue the, and the problem with the church on this subject. And so if you didn't get those articles, we'd love to send them to you. You can join our church email list just by sending us uh, your email address on this connection card, and we'll be happy to get those out to you. I want to say personally that for the first five years of my Christian life, I was a Bible-thumping homophobe. Um, that's just who I was. I had no love, no understanding. I just had a bunch of Bible verses and an attitude problem. Um, and then something happened to me. Um, I became friends with someone who was gay. And a close friend of mine came out to me, and all of a sudden, everything changed. Um, have you ever had that experience? I mean, it's not just with this issue, but just in general. Like, I find that I am often impatient, very rude and harsh uh, until I love someone who is dealing with something. And, and that changes everything. Um, all of a sudden, this wasn't just an intellectual discussion for me. And since then, for the past 21 years, my experience with this issue has been deeply personal. Um, I have friends who are gay and lesbian and bisexual. Um, some are Christians and some aren't. Um, some think that Jesus is against their homosexuality. Some think that Jesus is for their homosexuality. Um, I know of some people who are transgender, but I don't have any friends that are transgender. And so, um, so that's, that's my own personal uh, experience. And, and what I've seen over the course of my own life and in my own heart is that I and the church um, have been wrong in interpreting the Bible in two major ways. So there's two main ways that the church has been wrong. Um, there are some people and some churches who are, first of all, they're anti-gay. These are people and churches who say things like this, that God hates fags. Um, the Westboro Baptist Church is you know, the most publicly known uh, in this group. Um, Folks on this that are anti-gay also say that being gay is a choice and, and you can unchoose being gay and live a heterosexual lifestyle and a man-woman marriage if you really want to honor God. You see to repent and stop choosing to be gay. Um, in this group, a lot of folks act like homosexuality is the unpardonable sin or that it's worse than all of the other sins. So that's one side. On the other side of the spectrum, there are other people and other churches who are pro-gay. 
And these people and these churches also are characterized by saying certain things. They say, well, God is love. And everything in the Bible, everything the Bible says needs to be filtered through this truth that God is love. And so the judgment passages in the Bible against homosexuality, they're trumped by this truth that God is love. Okay? This group also says, you know what, gay people were born this way. In fact, God made them gay, so it must be okay. And this group says that being gay is not a sin. And some people in this group say that the verses about homosexuality in the Bible, they're actually not speaking about monogamous same-sex relationships. Okay, that's not what the Bible's talking about, they claim. That in the passages that deal with homosexuality, they're not talking about monogamous same-sex relationships, but they're actually speaking against exploitative um, relationships. So men with young boys, um, temple prostitution that was homosexual by nature, um, or domination rape in times of war. Um, this position says that the Bible writers actually had no category for monogamous same-sex relationships because they didn't exist back then. And so the Bible doesn't forbid them today because it never speaks against monogamous same-sex relationships. And I want to pause for a moment and address that because I think that that is the most scholarly-looking argument that exists today on the pro-gay side. Okay, And so... um, And I would point you to, and I'll give you this in a list of resources a little bit later, but Tim Keller has written a very helpful article that's a review of books that present this particular view. And I just want to give you a quote. This is what he says. He says, these books argument that Paul and the other biblical writers had no concept of an innate homosexual orientation or that they only knew of exploitive homosexual practices and therefore had no concept of mutual, loving, same-sex relationships. These arguments are not new. There is no new research that's been unearthed to to posit this this position. These arguments were first asserted in the 1980s. And so these books that are being written now are just a repopularizing of these views from the 80s. However, this, this is Tim going on to say this in the article. However, they do not seem to be aware that the great preponderance of the best historical scholarship since the 80s And it's the full spectrum, both secular and liberal and conservative researchers have rejected that assertion. They've rejected this scholarship. The liberals and the conservatives have rejected that. Um, For example, again, Tim's article goes on, Aristophanes' speech in Plato's Symposium tells a story about how Zeus split the original human beings in half, creating both heterosexual and homosexual humans each of which was seeking to be reunited to their lost halves, heterosexuals seeking the opposite sex, and homosexuals seeking the same sex. And so homosexual orientation was known in the ancient world. So that's just one example that shows that this idea that the biblical writers had no category for same-sex monogamous relationships, it's not true. Now, If the anti-gay side says there's no way to reconcile being gay with following Jesus, the pro-gay side says there's no need to reconcile the two because they're in harmony. Okay, Both of these groups see themselves as good and see the other side as bad. If you are anywhere in between... Uh, and and not one of the extremes of both sides, the other side will assume that you are the extreme of the side that you're on. And so... It's really frustrating. It's very difficult. It's the kind of frustrating non-dialogue that happens in politics. 
where Democrats hate Republicans, Republicans hate Democrats, and they never have helpful conversations. The same thing happens between these two groups, the pro-gay side and the anti-gay side. And what's challenging is that most people are convinced that there are really only two options. But Jesus and the Bible say that both of these sides are wrong. Both of these sides are wrong. Jesus and the Bible move us beyond the polarizing rhetoric that comes from both sides of this discussion. And they call us to Jesus' gospel-centered third way. The Bible is not anti-gay. The Bible is not pro-gay. But the good news of Jesus expressed in the Bible shows us a gospel-centered third way. And so we're going to look at two passages of the Bible today. We only have time for two. The article that I sent out deals with more passages. So again, if you want that, you can go deeper into it. Um, We're just going to look at two passages to see this third way of Jesus. Um, Then we're going to talk about some principles that will help us love our neighbors who are gay. And then finally, I'll give you some resources for further study. And so we're going to look first at the passage that's in your bulletin in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. So if you want to look in your bulletin, I'll put it up here on the screen as well. Um, This is what the Bible says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this passage, Paul, the writer, names and corrects nine different kinds of sins. So he corrects three categories of sexual sin and four categories of non-sexual sins. He doesn't single out homosexuality. Okay, It's not even first in his list. So he corrects sexual immorality, which is the general term for any sex for single people outside of marriage. He also corrects adultery. See that in verse 9. Adultery is any sex for married people outside of marriage. And so all three of these practices are outside of God's design for sex. Okay, And we need to realize that all forms of heterosexual premarital sex, all forms of heterosexual extramarital sex, so that includes cohabitation and adultery, they aren't any better than homosexuality. We need to understand this because it is so easy for a church that wants to take the Bible seriously to slip into this proof texting mentality where we literally just take shots at people who struggle with a particular kind of sin. And I think that if the church were more honest, if people were as rigorous in their lifestyle choices in the heterosexual world, we might actually have a better testimony um, to people that are on the pro-gay side. Okay, And so in addition to these three, the passage also corrects people who are greedy, who lie, who cheat, and who steal. 
I read this passage to a gay friend of mine who had never actually read the Bible. Um, he'd heard things about what the Bible said, and this was his reaction. His reaction was, that's it? Like, this doesn't single out homosexuality. I thought the Bible made homosexuality out to be the worst sin of all, but this just says it's one of many. I said, yeah. Now, this passage does not make the Bible anti-gay. Okay, clearly it's not pro-gay, lists homosexuality here. It's not anti-gay though either. It does correct the pro-gay side, but verse 11 also corrects the anti-gay group. Okay, look at it again. Verse 11, it demands two things. Let me tell you this before we read it again. It demands two things that are missing from the anti-gay group. Those two things are humility and understanding. Humility and understanding. The anti-gay church speaks like homosexuality is the unforgivable sin. It speaks like it's the worst thing anyone could ever do. And that people who are gay are so far gone that they are without hope. But that is not what Jesus' gospel-centered third way says. Look at verse 11. It says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everyone has sinned. With Jesus, everyone can be forgiven and accepted. Jesus' power is stronger than all of our sins. Jesus died so that everyone who believes in him could be forgiven. That's what the word washed means. They could be accepted by God as though they were perfect in his sight. That's what it means to be justified. And every person can have their lives transformed from the inside out. That's what it means to be sanctified. It's not good people who are part of God's family. This passage makes that, that clear. It's forgiven people who are part of God's family. Everyone, I would suggest, and if, you, if, if, if this isn't true for you, if you're the exception, please come talk to me after the service. Um, everyone is guilty of something in this list. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. I think everyone's guilty of something in this list. I am guilty of every single sin in this list, except for one. Um, I've never been a drunkard. Now, if you substitute food for drink, then I am guilty of every single sin in this list. I've committed all of them, either in action or in my thoughts and my heart. Um, yes, like, so by action or in my mind, I have been guilty of every single sin in this list. If you want to know more, come talk to me. The point here with Jesus' gospel-centered third way is that no one should ever think or act like they are better than anyone else. There's no room for that. I mean, after love, which should be the chief and sort of defining characteristic of anyone who knows Jesus... The characteristic of all Christians should secondly be humility, especially when you're correcting someone else. It's because we've all, we are all the same before God's perfect standard. And so I want to look now at, um, at this, at Jesus' gospel-centered third way from Jesus himself. Okay, let's look at the next passage that's in your bulletin. 
put it up here too. It'll take a few slides. Uh, this is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Um, this is kind of a famous passage. There's verses in this passage that um, get quoted even still in, um, in just in the culture today. Um, but I think it directly applies because it shows us how Jesus would respond to someone who is gay. Okay, so John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of the day. They brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When the religious leaders came to Jesus and posed this question to him, no one in the situation expected Jesus to come up with a gospel-centered third way. The religious leaders gave Jesus two choices. Will you either condemn the woman or will you condemn the Bible? Those, that was the choice, the if-then or, if, or this-that uh, choice they gave him. Uh, when they said this in verse um, 6 in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? And Jesus' response is, it's stunning. It stops everything. He doesn't play into their this or that view of the world. He doesn't even concede the question. He, the question is not, are you pro-adultery or are you anti-adultery? He doesn't choose either side, but he establishes a third way beyond the two. And he defines his third way by first confronting the anti-adultery group. Okay, that's what he does in verse 7. Let me back up a slide here. In verse 7, Jesus said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So what Jesus does, the first thing Jesus does after he writes in the ground, we can't talk about that right now, but um, I have talked about it in the past. You can look that up. But Jesus confronts them with their hypocrisy. Okay? He says they're in no place to condemn the woman because they themselves are guilty. And Jesus might be implying that they're guilty of adultery themselves. Um, He might be more generally confronting their hypocrisy and their hunger for power and control. Um, Jesus isn't anti-adultery. He doesn't identify with the anti-adultery group that wants to stone this woman because their condemnation of the woman is not in line with God. They are not on God's side of the issue. And so this makes Jesus sound pro-adultery until we see his interaction with the woman. Look at verses 10 and 11. Woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? He doesn't side. Jesus doesn't side with the pro-adultery group. Right? His message to the woman is the third way of the gospel. He says, neither do I condemn you. Meaning, I'm not part of the anti-adultery group that wants to stone you. Right? Let me go here. Let me show you this. So, neither do I condemn you. This is Jesus' response. He's saying, I'm not anti-adultery. Like, I'm not, meaning I'm not part of the group that wants to stone you. But then he goes on. He says, go and from now on, sin no more. And there he's saying, I'm also not pro-adultery either. And so Jesus doesn't play on either side. Jesus has a third way. It's a gospel-centered way. And we have to remember that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so Jesus came to reveal God to us. The one who had the authority to condemn did not condemn. The one who had the authority to condemn, right? I mean, it's when someone says to us, what right do you have to condemn me? In some ways they have a point. But even Jesus, the one who had the authority to condemn, won't condemn her. The anti-adultery side needs to put these words in their heart and in their mouth. But Jesus isn't done. Right? Go and from now on sin no more. So the Jesus who doesn't side with the pro the anti-adultery group doesn't side with the pro-adultery group either. Jesus invites this woman to change her ways and follow him. He invites her to trust him and to follow him specifically in the area of her sexuality. He doesn't condemn her, but he does correct her. And so Jesus' response, Jesus both corrects the woman's sexual activity and the religious leader's response to her sexual activity. I think Jesus' response is a model for Christians today in responding to any behavior that should be corrected by the Bible, including homosexuality. And so the Bible is neither anti-gay or pro-gay. Jesus' gospel-centered third way combines both love and truth. So just as a way to see this, um, love accepts, truth corrects. Right? That's what we're seeing so far. Well, I would add, you know, that instead of pitting these things against each other, let's let's squish them together. Let's throw love and truth together in a bag and shake it up, right? When we do that, what do we see? We see that loving truth accepts and true love corrects. It's not love if there's no truth. And it's not, and the other, the opposite too. I'm going to eject. I can't. I, my brain's not there. Um, You've got to have both. Right? Yellow and blue make green. Jesus is calling us to be green people here. Um, thank you. Appreciate that. This is one episode where it's very clear that Jesus combined both love and truth in his ministry with people. But I think the ultimate expression of Jesus' loving truth was his work on the cross. Okay, Jesus is, the cross shows Jesus' perfect love. Right? Here's just one verse. 
In John 15, 13, Jesus said, No greater love has anyone than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And so on the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross and gave his life for us, Jesus is saying to you, Neither do I condemn you. That's what Jesus is saying on the cross. Neither do I condemn you. And this is true whether we are gay or straight. And the cross also shows us perfect truth. 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24 it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. The cross stops us in our tracks because we don't want to continue to live in ways that made our Savior die. We don't want to add to the punishment that He endured by continuing to live in sin. And so the cross isn't correction that drives us away in shame. The cross is Jesus' arms open wide so that we might come to Him and receive His love. And it's this healing, it's, it's in this healing by His stripes that we're healed, and that's what sets us on the road to be able to go and to sin no more. And again, this is true whether we are gay or straight. And so what does this look like for us? And what does this look like for us as people that want to show the love of Jesus to other people who are gay or who are dealing with other things as well. Here's just a couple of ways to put this into practice. So the gospel center, third way in the flesh. First, when you get into conversations, when the conversation comes up, my recommendation to you would be to first and foremost admit that the church has been wrong. Admit that the church has been wrong. I would admit it in both ways. Say, and I do this all the time, and it is incredibly disarming, and we can actually have a conversation. I'll tell people, you know what? Gosh, this is a complicated issue, more so because I'm a Christian, and what I see in the church that I'm a part of, in the, in the you know, big picture, the church has been wrong in two ways on this issue. The church has been anti-gay, and that is wrong. And the church has also been pro-gay, and that's wrong too. Jesus actually has this other way. And when I just say, when you say that the church has been anti-gay and that's wrong, all of a sudden you get a hearing. No one expects a Christian to say that. And so, but it's not a manipulation technique. You just want to help people know that you are not anti, you're not anti-gay. And so explain that the church has been wrong. And then second, share Jesus' third way, both from his life and from his death. You know, there's this interesting story that's told about Jesus that I think is a really accurate picture of the way that he would respond to people who are gay today. There was this woman who was caught in sexual sin and there were people who wanted to stone her and just give a short telling of the story. And Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn her. He confronted the people who were anti this woman. And when he had her alone, he looked into her eyes and said, I don't condemn you, but go now and sin no more. Jesus invited her into a life where Jesus would be the most important thing more important than anything else. 
And that's what Jesus does. He calls us, whether we're pro-gay or anti-gay, He calls us to follow Him. He calls us to leave our wrong ways of thinking behind and follow Him with our lives. And it takes practice. It takes courage. It takes faith. And you need to be prepared to be misunderstood. Um, in my own efforts to love my gay neighbors and friends and colleagues, um, I have been accused by the anti-gay side of being pro-gay, and I've been accused of the pro-gay side for being anti-gay. And so I think that's sort of the nature of trying to create a third way, is that both sides will think that you're on the other side if you have anything negative to say about them. And so as you put this into practice, realize Realize that you're going to be misunderstood. Um, And then remember that God is simply asking you to love people with the love of Jesus. And how people respond is not your responsibility. And so, again, these are just two simple ways that you can try to put this into practice. I also want to tell you that there are three groups of people that um, I want to call Harbor City Heroes. Okay, there are three groups of heroes that we desperately need to have in our church if we're going to make any difference in the lives of our gay friends and family members. Okay? So if you actually want to make a difference, like understanding this is good. Understanding this is really good. Being able to articulate this is really good. But it's, it's not enough. It's not enough. I need for all of us to grow and to become the kinds of heroes that I'm going to list for you next. Okay? Now, some of you will be able to do all of these. Some of you will not be able to do all of these. And so, but these are what I'm calling Harbor City Heroes. What we need, what the city needs, we need people who identify with the sins of others. I need you to get really good at being able to convince other people because you know your own sin so well that there is no one who is worse than you. I need you to do everything you possibly can to learn how to identify with the sins and the struggles of others so that when someone tells you about something that you don't struggle with, you can try to understand what they're going through and how difficult it is. So if you have no clue about what it's like to be gay and to feel like you've been gay all of your life, is there anything that you are dealing with that Jesus would correct or Jesus is correcting that you can't seem to be rid of? Is there anything that's going on in your life that you wish would change about yourself and you can't, no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to make any progress? Or the progress you make is woefully infinitesimally small so that you just feel frustrated all the time. You want to be able to touch those parts of your heart and life if you want to be able to identify with people even if they're struggling with things that you don't understand. Second group of heroes, we need single people who are living a celibate life. Um, As a married person, in most of my interactions with my friends and the people who I love in the gay community, they 
basically there's a point in time where it comes up over and over and over again. Well, you, you know, it's easy for you to say. It's easy for you to say. Um, you don't know what it's like to have to deny your sexual orientation for the rest of your life. Um, to that I say, well, I know what you mean, and in some ways you're right, but in other ways there are elements of my sexual orientation that I have to constantly deny. I am not by nature a monogamous heterosexual person. And I know it's not the same thing, but I do understand some of, some of that struggle. But what we need, we need single people who are intentionally embracing a celibate life. Whether you want to be celibate for the rest of your life or not, we need single people who are content not being married. Because I think in some ways you can heroically live in a way that would give hope to people that Jesus is calling out of the pro-gay side. What excites me is that I know we have some of these heroes. We have some of these, some of these heroes. Some who have said, I just know that I'm not going to be married. Some who still desperately want to be married, but who are content with Jesus and love Jesus more than they love anything that would fall short of what Jesus um, says about how they should um, pursue um, sexual relationships. But I mean, the more single people that we have, the more of a demonstrable solution, the more of a demonstrable way of life we can offer to people um, from the gay community. And then the last um, group of heroes that we need, we need those who open their home and their lives to the lonely. This isn't just true about our gay friends and our family members, our coworkers and colleagues, but this is true even about single people. Um, and this isn't just for married people um, or people with families. Like we need people in our church who are willing to say, yeah, it's inconvenient. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, it's difficult. But I need to provide some relationship for the lonely people in our church. If we don't have this, we will not make a dent. We will not make a dent at all in San Diego um, for the cause of Christ, for the gospel with the gay and lesbian community. Like the thing that I have heard more often than not from people that I know personally and from people who speak and write on this subject to the Christian church is they say there is such an incredible loneliness there is such an incredible sense of, like, I have nowhere to go. You're telling me I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. And I want to say, no, 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 no. There's community in the church. There's real fellowship. We're a family. And it breaks my heart when I hear someone say, yeah, I've tried. And you know what? I didn't feel like a family to me. I know that's a two-way street. I know that we can't own all of that, but I want to challenge you to be a hero, to be a hero for the gospel's sake and for the sake of Jesus in our efforts to want to live out this gospel-centered third way into the gay community. Open up your home, open up your life, and make time for people who are lonely. Because if you do that, if our church has more hooks, and I get it, we're all crazy busy, and that's part of the problem. We're crazy busy with, with, with good things and we don't have 
the time. We don't set aside time in our schedule to say, you know what? I need to reach out to so-and-so. I need to invite them over. I need to have a drink with. I need to have lunch with. I need to have breakfast. I need to have dinner. I need to have, and we need to be doing this. If each one of us could commit to what is appropriate for us in this list, it would make a big difference. We can make a dent in the lives of individual people who don't see anything out of the pro-gay side. Any, all they see outside of the pro-gay side is loneliness. I want to give you just a few resources if you want to study more. Um, just list them up here. This is the article that I read from earlier. Tim Keller has written, um, it's called The Bible and Same-Sex Relationships, a review article. And in this article, he actually reviews two books that are in print right now that are relatively recent. Um, and he gives, I think, some very helpful thoughts. And it's, it's an article, so it's short. You can start there. Um, Rosaria Butterfield is, has written a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Um, she is tremendous. She is a lesbian who has connected to an incredibly conservative Presbyterian denomination um, and she was a professor at, gosh, either Yale or Harvard or Syracuse. Thank you. All right. Some of you know Rosaria. Um, you can go onto YouTube, though, and just listen to her speak. Um, she speaks all over the country. Anyways, her book um, and her speaking is fabulous. Um, then Andrew Marin has written a book called Love is an Orientation, the title of which just makes me happy um, because he reframes the conversation in a way that does... Uh, that I think is helpful. And then last, um, Sam Albury is a gay man who um, who's written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And um, he again speaks, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. I feel like he's a pastor. Yeah, he is? Okay, thank you. Yeah, so he's a pastor who is gay, um, living a life of celibacy and asking and answering the question, is God anti-gay? And so these are just four. There's a lot more. If you want more resources, you can email me, and I'd be happy to give you more. Um, the last thing that I wanted to do is I just wanted to share with you from a personal, like I've been, like I said, I spent the last 21 years deeply committed to people who are in the gay community. Um, some who are on Jesus' side of the equation, some who aren't some who are in different spectrums of Jesus' side of the equation. And, um, and I just want to read to you from the second article. This is just a short piece of it, just because I want you to be able to connect with the pathway that some have come, to be able to see that Jesus can actually be a way out um, and a way into... Um, into the gospel, a way that leaves both the anti-gay and the pro-gay sides behind into this third gospel-centered way. Um, and so this is written from the first person of, of a gay man. Okay, this is it. I've finally come to grips with what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus came and lived a life of sacrifice. He was God, but he came to earth and became human. As a human, he lived a life that was completely different from what he actually was. He changed his orientation from God to become God and human. And he lived his whole life denying himself, keeping his godness hidden. He didn't live according to his orientation as God. 
I can see now that the sacrifice that Jesus is asking me to make about my sexuality is the sacrifice that he himself made for his entire life. I thought about this, that Jesus even denied his own sexual orientation. He was never married. He never had sex. Whether Jesus was gay or straight, maybe he was gay, he didn't act on any of his sexual desires. He gave up fulfilling his desires. His desires weren't what he lived for. His whole life, all of his desires were second to his mission to work with God to save the world. In his life, he brought into the world a love that is stronger than all sin. And he was so committed to this that he was even willing to die so that my sinful actions, fulfilling my sinful desires, could be forgiven. And in this, Jesus was actually showing us exactly who God is. That God is someone willing to sacrifice everything he has to show others just how much he loves them. So I'm in. I don't know where it's going to lead, but I'm convinced that if he lived and died for me, then I will do my best to follow him wherever he leads. I will do whatever he wants. I'm in. Are you in? Let's pray together. Jesus, would you forgive us for being wrongly anti-gay, for being wrongly pro-gay? Would you help us to see you so clearly in flesh and blood on this earth, loving people, not condemning them, accepting and correcting them. Help us, Jesus. We want so much. There are so many people that we know who are in the anti-gay world, who are so enslaved to bitterness and condemnation and harshness. Um, So many people connected to our church who are in the pro-gay side of things. And we pray that you would lead us and show us who you are more and more clearly and do it together so that we can help each other to talk and to pray so that we can live these things out. Jesus, thank you for reorienting your life around us, for sacrificing everything so that we might find our way back to you. Help us, Lord. And for those of us who are dealing with all kinds of sexual desires and sexual actions that don't fit in with your design for sex, would you please lovingly correct us And remind us that you don't condemn us, but you accept us through your blood. I pray that for all of us, that we would bow our knee to you again today. In humility, with a desire for greater understanding. So that we would be a church full of heroes. Willing to follow your footsteps and sacrifice. So that we might make room in our lives 
for others to see that there's another way. And we pray this in your name. Amen.